On the last episode of The TV Room, we talked about how, despite pulling off the political upset of the century in November, the Republican Party could be in hot water now because they had to make a Faustian bargain with Donald J. Trump, who signaled that, if elected, he would treat the government like a bull treats a china shop. And we talked about how the Democrats were in even worse shape because they got shellacked by the Republican Party that just got hacked by Trump. And at the moment, the party that Trump hacked controls both houses of Congress and most of the state legislatures and governorships as well. So, with Cheeto Benito in the White House and the Democrats firmly on the sidelines, it's probably a safe bet that our system of checks and balances will get a vigorous workout over the next four years. With some people going so far as to say that it looks like the version of Back to the Future where Biff's in charge. And that it doesn't look like any wacky professor is going to be turning the DeLorean into a time machine anytime soon. But the national institution that could be facing the biggest crisis right about now might not be either major party or any of the branches of government, but the fourth estate itself, the press. Good old-fashioned, forgotten-about journalism. An overlooked and downsized relic from the pre-internet era. The rise and fall of American journalism might not seem like the subject for a podcast about the television age, but it really is, because TV news and TV itself are merely the end product of a period of stunning technological innovation and social transformation that began way back in the 19th century and is still playing out today. We're going to talk about the state of television news today and how it got here on the next two episodes of The TV Room. This is the Dumont Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown asset is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the Hello, I'm James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? What is internet anyway? Allison, can you explain what internet is? Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. The story of American journalism might not seem like an age of television event, but it is, for a number of reasons. For starters, newspapers and television are both mediums of mass communication, or media for short. By looking at the rise and fall of newspapers, we can also see things about the rise and fall of television. History may or may not repeat itself, but it usually rhymes. For another thing, Television news broadcasting developed out of radio news broadcasting, which developed out of print journalism. So our idea of the trusted anchorman, someone like Walter Cronkite, delivering the same reliable news to tens of millions of households all across the country, telling it like it is while the politicians lied, that stems directly from the code of journalistic conduct developed by newspapermen at the turn of the century. 
And finally, we always hear that we're living in the information age now. But this is really the second information age in our history. The first began with the invention of the telegraph, circa 1840, and probably hit its high watermark just a few decades ago during the age of the television anchorman, when the average household subscribed to a daily newspaper, a weekly magazine or two, and watched Walter Cronkite or Huntley and Brinkley every night on the evening news. Television represented a big challenge for print journalism. That much is true. It offered competition for eyeballs and attention spans. Television may have put an end to the golden age of radio programs, but television didn't put print journalism out of business. The two existed side by side just fine. You read your paper in the morning, you watched your news in the evening. No, it's not television that's putting magazines and newspapers out of business. It's the internet that's putting magazines and newspapers out of business. The rise and fall of American journalism might not be the most exciting story ever told, but it is a story that needs telling right about now. Because after years of taking journalism for granted, as its organs were gutted and its infrastructure was stripped down for parts, as the public switched from newspaper and magazine subscriptions to internet browsing, what if we find that when we really need the checks and balances our established journalistic culture provided for us for so long, and that we always took for granted, they're suddenly no longer there. That was the overriding thought in the days after the election, shared by myself and others. We're in uncharted territory here, with Donald Trump taking over both the Republican Party and the presidency, and leaving the opposition party in no position to provide the first line of checks and balances we're accustomed to. In these extreme situations, having a robust and respected press with a big readership is paramount. But, now that we need them all of a sudden, where are these daily and weekly periodicals we counted on for a reliable, neutral analysis of current events and politics? Where's Time? Where's Newsweek? Where's the U.S. News and World Report? Where's the New York Times? The Washington Post? The Wall Street Journal? The dozens of independent city newspapers that were relied on as a first source for news that could be counted on to uphold certain standards of objectivity and integrity and keep an eye on City Hall. Well, we let them all go. The New York Times is still privately owned and is still managing to hold on, but rumors of its inevitable demise are everywhere. Although, in the wake of Trump's victory, a lot of people started thinking along the same lines we are and went ahead and took out paid subscriptions to the New York Times on principle even though they could probably get all the information for free online. The Wall Street Journal is still around, but it's owned by Rupert Murdoch now. The Washington Post is still around too, but it's owned by the guy who owns Amazon.com. These papers were institutions that stayed in the same family for generations and had received dozens and dozens of Pulitzer Prizes for their work over the decades. Newspapers in all cities, big and small, built up local relationships, local trust, and local followings as watchdogs over local affairs. They had enough clout to call out a corrupt businessman or politician, 
and a critical mass of informed readers who would listen and react. But once everybody had the internet, the headlines in the morning paper were already old news by the time it got to your doorstep. And the ink stained your fingers. So we were happy to let newspapers and magazines go by the wayside because we didn't particularly miss them. The internet gave us all the information we needed, right away. As far as national and international news, even before the internet arrived, we had been getting more and more of it from television. And for a long time, we trusted television to give us the same kind of unsensationalized, unbiased news that newspapers did. The national news anchorman was the most trusted person in America. Now, that institution, the trusted anchorman, had been diminishing for quite some time, but it happened gradually, over decades, and it was accompanied by the steady rise of 24-hour cable news. So even as the prestige of the anchorman fell, we didn't feel like we were being underinformed by television. As a society, our government institutions were stable enough that we could afford to be on autopilot. Sometimes campaign rhetoric got a little heated, but the presidential nominees were always loyal company men who respected and were well-versed in the protocols of good governance. We never had to worry about things like that. The system practically ran itself. Well, all that changed on November 9, 2016 when we woke up to find that Trump had won the election and his party was now in charge of everything. And we found ourselves asking, what institution can we trust to have the gravitas to go toe-to-toe with this newly ascendant brand of populism? Cable news? I found myself blaming CNN for being largely responsible for getting us into this situation. In episode five of The TV Room, the one entitled Trump, a TV character becomes president, We described how CNN, among others, eagerly played up the Trump campaign, as outrageous as it was, because they knew it brought good ratings, and that by generating hype for Trump's debates and interviews, they would get even better ratings. Now, CNN and the other networks may still have had anchormen and women sitting at desks, but beyond that, they bore little resemblance to the newscasters of Walter Cronkite's time. During my lifetime, and probably yours and your parents and grandparents, we always counted on the press to speak truth to power, to hold businesses and organizations accountable, to expose corruption and wrongdoing, to keep their eye on things like a teacher in a classroom of kids, to make sure on our behalf that these people and institutions behaved themselves so we didn't have to worry about it. And they did a good job. Overall, American democracy was an imminently stable institution. Americans could look at Europe and its century of wars and fascism and say, well, somehow we managed to avoid that here. America was boringly stable. We had the same two parties year after year agreeing to disagree, but nothing more. That stability was the only thing we, our parents, our grandparents, and their parents and grandparents had ever known. And so, as we watched a complete outsider like Trump come in and take over the Republican Party from Little Marco, Ugly Carly, Lion Ted, and Low Energy Jeb, and then go on to defeat Crooked Hillary and the Democrats to take the White House, while the media could really do nothing but look at their poll predictions and scratch their heads, 
It felt like it was maybe our turn now to experience the interesting times that the country had been spared over the last century and a half. Well, things have settled down a little bit. No one's talking about coups and jackbooted thugs shutting down TV stations and throwing Hillary in jail. For the moment. But the chapter we're about to enter is still unwritten. All we know is that the next four years are going to be something brand new and unprecedented in our modern history. Four years from now, our world will be a different place. And that's why this is a good time to take stock of where things stand and how we got here. The election of 2016 was in part defined by two examples of modern technology, the email and the tweet. One candidate was very adept at using his Twitter, and the other candidate was very inept at using her email. In both cases, it was a reminder that, ready or not, we're in a new era of communications now. This is the side of the information age they don't advertise in brochures. They say that the 20th century didn't really begin until World War I kicked off in 1914. That was when the destructive side of all this life-changing new technology from the turn of the century came into play. And it could be that the 21st century really didn't begin until the election of 2016, when the information age's other shoe dropped. Well, we mentioned that journalism as we know it may be going through a life-altering transformation that nobody knows the ending to. But the best way to predict what might happen is to revisit what has already happened. It doesn't always repeat itself, but it usually rhymes. So as we tentatively take that last leap from the 20th century into the 21st and adjust our footing to the terrain of this new information age, let's go back in time to an era that nobody on our planet was alive to remember and look at the previous information age. The invention that really kicked off the first information age, and the modern age of journalism, was the telegraph. The 19th century was the century of great inventions, when everything from the railroad to the light bulb was created. But an invention whose importance is easily overlooked today is the telegraph. When we think of the media innovations that brought us from the 19th century into modernity, we think of the glamorous things like radio, photography, the phonograph, moving pictures. But the one invention that did more than anything to thrust us forward into that first information age was the telegraph. Somehow we don't associate the electrical bleeps of dots and dashes with modernity at all. It actually seems like something really antiquated. One of those wind-up gramophone record players from the 19th century with a big ear horn on it also looks antiquated to our eyes. But you can play records on it, which made it a steampunk version of the coolest thing you could have in the 70s and 80s. A record player to play your Pink Floyd albums on. 
You could say the same thing about cameras and radios and black lights and telephones and all the other cool wonders of technologies that you could have in your late 20th century bedroom. They all had a recognizable prototype from the previous century. But what's so great about the telegraph? Didn't the telephone pretty much make it obsolete? Well, for a teenager in his bedroom in the 70s, yes it did. But those kinds of everyday commonplace telephones wouldn't be functioning until well into the 20th century, whereas telegraphs were widely in use by the 1850s. In old black and white films, there are scenes of telegrams being delivered right to your door and read to you by the delivery boy. It seems like such an absurd notion that you wonder if it's for real or just a gag played up in movies for the novelty value. Kind of like the singing telegram that you'd see on 70s sitcoms. But it was for real. The country was wired for telegrams long before it was wired for telephones. And even after the phone was around, it was still much easier and more efficient to convey messages over long distance via the telegram, have the messages printed out at the local telegram office branch, and then send delivery boys out for the last leg, usually on bicycle, to the customer's address. Of course, the delivery boy would need a recognizable uniform so people knew he was legit as he ran in and out of buildings. As for reading the telegram, well, most customers would probably just take the note and read it themselves. But in early 20th century America, you couldn't just assume that everybody was literate in English. So reading the note aloud to the recipient would be a part of the job description of the telegram delivery boy. At some point, when access to telephones became nearly universal, the telegram would have lost its usefulness, and telegram delivery boys would have gone the way of, well, bike messengers in the age of the internet. A telephone allows you to hear the voice of a loved one from miles away, and that's priceless. Like a light bulb or a phonograph, the telephone is a life-enhancing experience. But the telegraph is much more. The telegraph represents a breakthrough on the time-space continuum itself. At the start of the 1800s, nothing could go faster than a horse or a sailing ship, including a communique unless you wanted to get innovative and use a carrier pigeon or smoke signals or a talking drum. But these methods have their limitations. With the advent of the steam engine and the railroad in the first half of the 1800s, suddenly people and things could be moved much faster and in greater quantity than ever before. Trains could travel at 20 or 30 miles an hour all day long, but a telegraph could go hundreds, even thousands of miles in an hour. And what the telegraph carried was information. Information that could be used for everything from making business decisions to transmitting news and weather reports to relaying military intelligence and getting election results. A country the size of America could, for the first time, all be on the same page at the same time. No more waiting around for three weeks in the Western territories to find out who won the election back in Washington. 
Part of the reason the telegraph seems like such an unglamorous invention is that we associate it with the length of exposed wires strung across rickety wooden poles that made an eerie insect-like sound that seemed to emanate from some alien race in outer space or 20,000 leagues under the sea. What we fail to appreciate from our vantage point is how that sound actually represented the conversion of our alphabet into bits of binary data, the dots and dashes of the Morse code. Basically, those dots and dashes were the ones and zeros of the analog era, which is what we like to call the pre-digital era on this podcast. Once you had the ability to send electrical impulses remotely like that on telegraph, all the other communication innovations soon followed, starting with the telephone. Then they figured out that you didn't even need to be tethered to a wire to send electrical signals. You could send them through the air, and the radio was invented and ultimately television. The internet era started out the same way. Do you remember that sound you got when you accidentally dialed a fax line from your telephone? Or when you picked up a landline that was being used to dial up the internet at that moment? Well, that sound is the eerie, Martian-like, 20,000 leagues under the sea insect noise of our time. The first files that people began exchanging and then posting to this brand new thing called the internet were basic text messages. There weren't even fonts, kind of like the telegram. But this was just the beginning. After the text files came sound and images and then video and then wireless connectivity. It played out pretty much like the telegram to television timeline did from the mid 19th to mid 20th centuries but over the course of a decade rather than a century. Sending a telegraph was not cheap, and they charged by the word. So people figured out ways of eliminating small words like uh and the from their messages. Now, I'm not really sure why they charged by the word instead of the letter, but you can imagine that if they did charge by the letter, people would have figured out all sorts of ways to get rid of the extra letters, like lopping off O-G-H from the word through, or creating new acronyms like OMG, LOL, TLDR, and ROFLMAO, which is exactly what people start to do when something like Twitter puts a premium on characters instead of words. Unsurprisingly, Journalism may have been the profession that was most revolutionized by the advent of the telegraph. Consider, at the start of the 1800s, breaking news used to travel at the speed of a galloping horse or a sailing ship. Information couldn't travel any faster than a person could. But once you could send information out over the wires, for the first time ever, people were able to communicate at the speed of electricity. Did we mention that by 1866, there was a transatlantic telegraph cable running along the seafloor between Europe and North America? True, it could only transmit eight words per minute at first, but by the turn of the century, it was up to 120 words a minute. And by then, they were already laying the groundwork for transatlantic telephone calls, the first of which was made in 1926. 
As soon as Morse code telegraphs started being sent in the 1840s, people began developing mechanical interfaces that would convert the letters of the alphabet into the electronic dots and dashes of Morse code. These interfaces were called keyboards. In fact, it marked the first time that word was used for something other than musical instruments. On the keyboard, the letters were laid out before you on a series of fingertip-sized keys that you pressed one at a time in order to compose your message. Now I know what you're thinking. That sounds suspiciously like a typewriter. But typewriters hadn't been invented yet. The typewriter wouldn't be developed until the 1860s as a response to the information boom that the telegraph had created. Demand for fast, detailed, standardized, accurate information meant that the process of writing itself needed to be sped up and automated. It needed to be mechanized. Typewriters caught on quick and soon became the new normal in every field of writing. And even though today in the computer age, hardly anybody uses an actual typewriter anymore, our computer interface is still the QWERTY keyboard of those manual typewriters from the 19th century. And then there was the technology associated with the receiving end of the telegraph. The part that took the dots and dashes transmitted over the wire and fed them into a printing device that converted the dots and dashes back into letters, just like a computer printer. We mentioned the telegram boy's place in classic Hollywood cinema. Well, if you can remember the Adams Family TV show, when Gomez Adams would peer at these tiny strips of paper being spit out by a machine in his home office and announce, I just made 100,000. I just lost 100,000. Well, that was a ticker tape machine, and that is a prime example of a telegraphic printer right there. Information would be telegraphed straight from the floor of the stock exchange to the offices of stock traders all around the world. Now, The Addams Family was filmed in the 1960s, and by then stock tickers were pretty much obsolete. But keep in mind that The Addams Family was based on drawings done by cartoonist Charles Adams in the 1930s for The New Yorker magazine, at a time when stock tickers would have been a little more current. Of course, after the 1929 market crash, the stock ticker and the whole idea of gaining a fortune and losing a fortune in a single breath would have a much more dubious symbolism. Well, even if you've never seen The Addams Family and have never heard of a ticker tape machine before, you probably still know what a ticker tape parade is. Back when New York City was New York City, the biggest boomtown on the planet from the 1880s to the 1950s, ticker tape was an essential part of the city's fabric. As fortunes were made, empires were built, and huddled masses crowded the gates in order to try to carve off a little piece of the apple for themselves. Ticker tape was as emblematic of New York as sunshine and oranges were of California. So when that city decided to bestow its highest recognition on somebody, it was perfectly natural to do it with a parade of ticker tape. In fact, the idea of the ticker tape parade has far outlived the idea of ticker tape. Along with the ticker tape parade and the telegram boy, 
Another emblematic part of this late 19th to mid 20th century New York is the paperboy shouting, extra, extra, read all about it. Extra wasn't just a word they used for chatter, like yo, 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 read all about it. Newspapers of the time would print out new editions around the clock, constantly updating their front pages with the latest information. It was a well-oiled machine, and the turnaround was fast. You could get a story from press to print within the hour. And remember, this was an information age, so it stands to reason that some people would be information junkies, just like now. They didn't have smartphones to look at. They had the daily papers to look at. New York City had dozens of papers to choose from, many of which would have a morning edition, a mid-morning edition, an afternoon edition, a late afternoon edition, an evening edition, and so on. Information junkies would anticipate the arrival of these updated editions the way we might anticipate news updates on TV, radio, or our email inbox. So when the paper boys ran around shouting, hot off the presses, extra, extra, read all about it, they weren't just shouting yo, yo, yo. They were telling the information junkies, here's your latest update, still warm from the printing press with new information since our last printing. I may have been one of the very last people in my age bracket to figure out how to use a computer or to grasp the idea that the internet wasn't some sort of huge digital encyclopedia stored in your computer's hard drive. It took me a long while to figure out how to create, format, save, and edit a basic text document. But once I saw Napster and realized that sound files could be stored and shared just like text files, I suddenly saw the whole picture. That we'd eventually be doing the same thing with photography and even video. I even understood that while your printer prints a page that looks perfectly flat, it's actually shooting ink onto a page in a predetermined design, told to it by the computer. Well, if a home printer can shoot one layer of ink, why not a hundred layers? And why not some sort of polymer instead of ink? I really had that thought, long before I knew how to CC an email. And today, 3D printing is a thing. Who knows what other kind of objects will be printable in the next few decades. And that brings us back to the telegraph and the newspaper. By the 1920s, once phone lines began replacing telegraph lines for high-speed communications, it became possible for newspapers to send not just text remotely across the wires, but also photos. This was done using something called halftone photography, in which a photograph would be broken down into hundreds of tiny little black and white dots, or pixels, with intermittent halftones of gray in between. These halftone dots, or pixels, could reproduce a black and white photograph that could be transmitted over a phone line and reprinted on the front page of a daily newspaper. Now, most of us knew that newspaper photos were made up of hundreds of little dots like that. You can easily see them with the naked eye, 
But not everybody knew that you could fax those photos over phone lines from halfway around the world, as far back as the Roaring Twenties. On the next episode of The TV Room, we're going to talk about how all this revolutionary 19th century technology catapulted us into the modern age. How the meteoric growth of certain newspapers into global media empires made it much too easy for some people to manipulate the truth for personal or political gain. How some leading citizens of the time did something about this emerging problem. And how it all relates to us, the people of 2017. The TV Room is a production of Sorif TV. Find us online at sorif.tv. That's S as in street legal, O-R-E, F as in fireproof, TV. There, you will find links to all seven podcast episodes, along with dozens of articles about these topics and more. upon the life of the people.